Um, if anybody here has a name that you would like us to study for as well, you can put it in the chat box and I will keep it in mind as we study. Okay. Hi, Ellen. So we are on the book of Proverbs, Mishle, and we are on chapter 17, verse five. Okay. So um, some of you who are newer were asking about um, where I post the recording. So I post the recording on our WhatsApp chat. And then I also have the recording uploaded to my podcast. So for those of you who are podcast people, if you search your podcast for my name, two podcasts will come up. One of them is um, the book of life. That's through momentum. That's a 10 minute teaching on the, on the Torah portion of the week, which we're actually in the process of relaunching. And the other one is called soul construction with Ruchi Koval. And that's this class. I record the class and I post it as a podcast. And then also my app, which I posted the link to, you can go on my app and listen to all previous classes, many previous classes, including this one. Okay. In case you miss it. So, all right. Hello, Sydney and Eileen. So nice to see you guys. And we are studying for Yosef Zev Ben Sarah and Ari Ben Darwin as well. Okay, great. So chapter 17, verse five, the book of Mishle, book of Proverbs written by King Solomon, full of eternal wisdom. All right, here we go. Verse five. One who mocks the poor, blasphemes his maker, a person happy or glad at calamity will not go unpunished. All right. So in this verse, we're talking about two different negative, two different types of negative behavior. One of them is mocking the poor. And the other one is being happy when something bad happens to somebody else. Right now, obviously, these are very, not very savory behaviors, unfortunately, we all are guilty of some of these, you know, some form of these some of the time. So it's something to keep our eyes open. Now, before we before we get into what this means, according to the commentary, I just want to point something out. Low Egla Rush, mocking the poor, is a concept that has a very tangible application in practical Jewish law. Okay. Okay. I see Yehuda Leib Yitzchak Ben Zahava for uh, Rafua recovery and Dina Bat Galina for recovery. Amen. Um, so what is, what does it mean? So, you know, there's a practice that many Jews have when they visit a cemetery that a man who wears tzitzit should tuck them in and not have them show. Why? Because of this verse, loeg Larash, mocking the poor. What does that mean? When a person visits a cemetery, the people who are buried there are poor. Why? Because they cannot do mitzvot anymore, Right. In this lifetime, this is a lifetime of action. This is the world of action. We can do mitzvot. We can do good deeds. We can do acts of kindness. We can pray. We can give charity. We can celebrate Shabbat. We can do all kinds of amazing things. But people who have passed on to the next world, right? Even though we believe that the next world is a wonderful place to be, it's a world of truth. But the people who have passed, I like poor them. They can't do mitzvot anymore. So it would be like mocking the poor 
to go into the cemetery with an obvious expression of mitzvah observance showing. So that's why a man would tuck in his tzitzit in a cemetery so as not to mock the poor. Very, very interesting. And also like a real reminder of how lucky we are, those of us who are among the living, right? As, as the, the book Ethics of the Father says, one moment of Torah and mitzvot in this world is better than all of the world to come. Why? Because this is a world of limitless potential. Every moment is pregnant with opportunity. You can do so much good in every moment, right? And when we go to sleep at night and we think back on our day, there is nothing like feeling accomplished. Ah, I did something today. I did something positive. I did something purposeful. I did something constructive. I feel great about myself, right? A person who has passed on to the next world, that's no longer the world of achievement and accomplishment. It's a world of living with the results of whatever you achieved and accomplished while you were alive. So I just want to explain, like, here's this little tiny phrase, right? In this book of ethics, nevertheless, it has practical, tangible applications in Jewish law. Okay. Hi, Dana. All right. So now let's go to the commentary. What does it mean that he who uh, he who mocks the poor blasphemes his maker. So the first thing that he does in the commentary, which is on page 179, for those of you following along in this book, is that um, the Malbim quotes a very similar verse from chapter 14. He who oppresses a poor blasphemes his maker. Because as we explained there, his creator certainly prepared sustenance for him. And if you withhold part of it from him, it is as you blaspheme him. So what does that mean? It means that if you see a poor person, right, and you make fun of him or you oppress him, well, maybe his salvation is in your pocket. So maybe you could do something about it, right? This world, in this world, the way it works is, hi, Tova, is that God Bye. allocates funds and the way God wants us to handle the funds, he, he told us, he gave us like, a trust disbursement guideline, right? What does he want us to do with it? Well, he tells us, I want you to give this amount to the poor. I want you to support Torah study. I want you to practice hospitality, right? So it's like God is sort of tapping us to be the banker in the game of Monopoly. And there are rules to being the banker in Monopoly, right? Somebody passes go, you give them $200. Do you guys remember a time when we thought that was a lot of money? <laughs> now, if the banker starts stealing from the bank and putting money in his own pocket, right? Well, that's what we call fraud. <laughs> and that person is no longer going to be chosen as the banker next time because that person is misusing the funds for personal use. So God hands out money, right? And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do, right? We're coming close to the high holidays. What does God want us to do on high holidays? The Torah says, <laughs> repentance, charity, and prayer. That's how you are. That's how you avoid a negative decree. So God's handing us the recipe. You want to get a good decree on Rosh Hashanah? Okay. Part of it is I want you to give tzedakah, right? So let's say a person says, eh, what? I don't know. That guy doesn't deserve it. I think I'll just make fun of him instead. Oh my gosh, did you see that? Oh my gosh, did you see that car? Oh my gosh, did you see Did you see that his clothing? Did you see that house? Good job, you know? Well, 
God didn't ask you to judge the person. God asked you to share with the person. So if you are making fun of the poor instead of using your funds to help the poor, then it's like you're blaspheming God because God is the one who gave you the money and who gave you the rules of what it means to be God's investment banker, right? It's like, um, <laughs> I just wrote this in my new book. It's like this um, rabbi who comes to the rich man in the shtetl and he's collecting funds before the holidays, right? And the guy doesn't want to give tzedakah. So the rabbi comes over to the, to the rich man and he says, I have good news and bad news. So the guy says, okay, what is it? <laughs> so he says, well, the good news is that I have figured out where to find the money to support this whole community for the holidays. So the guy goes, great. What's the bad news? The bad news is it's in your pocket. <laughs> okay. You're going to go make fun of a poor person. Well, the answer is in your pocket. So you're going to go and like sort of defy God's rule book. So why do you think God is going to keep giving you money? Right. This is actually a teaching in this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion has one of the most well-known phrases in the Torah. For those of you who are following along in the Torah portions of the week, we are on the last of the five books of Moses, right? As we come close to the fall holidays, one of them is Simcha Torah, where we celebrate finishing the whole Torah. So we're right now on the last of the five books. We're in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving the Jewish people his goodbye speech. And in this week's portion, he says, listen, guys. Here's what's going to happen when you get to the Holy Land. God is going to make you successful financially. And this is really like prophetic, not just for when the Jews got into the land of Israel, but wherever the Jewish people have found themselves, this cycle has perpetuated itself. We had it in Spain. We had it in Germany. We had it in Morocco. We had it in Egypt. The Jews become very, very successful. And then Moses says, here's what's going to happen when you become successful. You will run the risk and the danger of forgetting God. And you will say to yourself, my strength and the might of my hands has given me this success. This is what I'm talking about in my Parsha class this week. For those of you who are local, please feel free to come. And so this is what happens to people often, right? Is that when they are in a bad place financially, they're like, what happened, God? Why me, God? Please help me. All of a sudden they remember God. And when they're successful and they do well, they're often like, oh, I I'm good, God. I haven't figured it out. I have figured it out. Never mind. I'm good, right? They forget about God. So this is why the person who mocks the poor is blaspheming God. Okay. So as back to the commentary, his creator certainly prepared his sustenance for him. And if you withhold part of it from him, it is as if you blaspheme him, since you make it appear that the poor man was created merely to suffer for no good purpose. So what do you think? You think God created people just to suffer for no good purpose? No, God created haves and have nots so that the haves will help the have nots so that we could have a world of kindness. Because as it says in the Torah, Olam chesed this world was built on kindness. So we need people to help each other and share. This was one of the greatest tragedies of communism is that people did not own their own stuff and therefore could not share. Because nothing belongs to you. If nothing belongs to you, if you don't have financial autonomy, then how can you help others? 
right? Hey. I'm just muting everybody because I'm getting some feedback here. But if you want to ask or share something, please do unmute yourself. But even if you merely mock and sneer at him for his misfortune, meaning you can't help him, so it's not like you're withholding anything from him, but you're just making fun of him anyway, this too is blasphemy for the same reason. So what are you saying? That God makes mistakes, right? I remember when I was a little girl in my parents' house, they, my mother had, well, she had two, my mother had two signs in the bathroom. One of them I didn't understand until I was much older. That one said, it shows a little boy sitting on the toilet with the paper, toilet paper. And it says, no job is complete until the paperwork is done, which I didn't really understand why that was funny until I was much, much older, but that is funny. <laughs> and the second one said something like, I know I'm special because God don't make no junk, you know? So as a little girl, I still, I mean, this is a funny thing to say in a Torah class, but I still really like to read in the bathroom and I always do. <laughs> in, my, in my house, we literally have books in every single bathroom. And I remember when my brother got married and my sister-in-law came into the family, she's like, what is up with you guys and reading in the bathroom? I'm like, what else are you going to do when you're in there? She's like, I, I, you guys are weird. I'm like, that's okay. We have like a magazine rack in every bathroom. That's fine. Point being, I used to sit there as a little girl and look at this sign, God don't make no junk, you know, it sinks, it seeps in, you know, when you keep looking at that over and over and over again. So what are you going to do? Look at the poor person and say, ew, well, God brought that situation about. So what do you think? God makes junk? So even if it's not a matter of you practically assisting or not assisting, right, even if you're not in a position to assist or whatever the case may be. But still, you're going to make fun of that person for falling on bad times, right? I have definitely mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again. There is this guy on Instagram. His name is Joshua Kumbas. He lives in England, in London, and he's a professional hairstylist. And what he's been doing, I haven't seen him post lately, but what he's been doing is he travels around and he finds homeless people and he gives them haircuts. He takes before and after pictures, but more importantly, while he's giving them haircuts, he talks to them and he listens to their stories and how they have come to be homeless, how they come, have come to not have family who can help them or fallen on hard times. And in the caption, he shares parts of their story, you know, and you can't read this stuff without feeling a sense of compassion, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, why do I live in a house, you know, because I'm blessed. That's why. So what are you going to do? Make fun of a person like this? You, you, you think that God has, you know, created junk. And of course, obviously a person's free will falls into this as well. I'm not discounting that. But nevertheless, it's our responsibility to help and not judge. And obviously when it comes to financial assistance, every person has to be judicious about where they're allocating their tzedakah dollars. There's no question about that. But I'm talking about looking upon these people with disgust and derision without knowing their stories, right? That's not what we're supposed to do. And if you, back to the commentary, and if you exult at his plight because he was your enemy, you will pay for it. When your enemy falls, do not rejoice. And that's a quote from this book from chapter 24. Okay, so again, back to the text, one who mocks the poor blasphemes his maker, a person glad at calamity will not go unpunished, right? You have to understand that the things that happen to people, again, I'm not talking about free will right now, but a big part of it is that that is God's plan, right? And that it's our responsibility to have compassion, even if we can't physically help the person. 
Although certainly if we can help the person, we should, but not to make fun of that person and certainly not to be happy for their plight if that person was your enemy, right? That is not a very Jewish behavior. Okay, pausing here for thoughts, comments, comments, and questions. Anyone? I'm sure there's a big difference between being glad for someone's um, misfortune versus, you know, a person who is, you know, like an evil person, say. Um, Absolutely. Evil people are in a category all their own. In Hebrew, that's called a Russia, a wicked person, right? It's a very specific designation. That's a person who repeatedly, remorselessly, and with full knowledge violates the Torah precepts and harms others, right? Now that's a rare designation, as I always say. I'm going to pick my favorite villain and say Bernie Madoff fits into that category, right? If you see Bernie Madoff rotting in prison, you can be happy about that. Yes, because of all the people he harmed and swindled and damaged lives and ruined charitable organizations. Yes, that is an, that is an exception and it's a rare exception. So yes, thank you for pointing that out. Um, okay, anyone else, any other thoughts? Okie doke, let us move on. Verse six. Also a relatively well-known phrase from this book. Children's children are the crown of the aged and the glory of children are their fathers. So this is a commentary on families, on the blessing that is family, right? So we say your grandchildren, your children's children are the crown of the aged. That if, if, if a person who is older has the incredible blessing and privilege, which not everybody has been provided by God to have grandchildren. That is like the crown of their grandparents. And the glory of children are their fathers. So the grandparents can glory in their grandchildren and the children can glory in their parents, right? Now, obviously this is not a guarantee. Some people, as I said, have not are not blessed to be parents. And for some people, their grandchildren do not bring them nachas, or maybe their children don't either. Um, and for some people also, their parents are not their glory, right? Sometimes people, I mean, look at Abraham, our patriarch, and Sarah. They did not have parents that they were particularly proud of. The opposite was true. They had to overcome what they had been taught at home in order to find morality, right? So this is not a guarantee of any sorts. It's talking about a blessing that some people are privileged and blessed to have. Now, I will tell you something very interesting. The word nachas, which is not in this verse, but you know, it's, we're sort of talk, talking about nachas in this verse. Nachas is one of those words that's technically Hebrew, and it means like it, it, in the Torah we talk about a nachas ruach. That means a contented or spiritually satisfying feeling. As far as I can see. There is no good word in English to capture this emotion. 
Some people say pride. Some people say contentment. Some people say satisfaction. None of those things really captures what nachas is. And I find this very often in Hebrew where you'll have nachas, a short little tiny word. It has three letters and it conveys so much. You would need like a paragraph in English to explain what it is, right? But nachas is this like amazing, satisfying feeling that something that you created is bringing you pride and joy. And it's beautiful. So there's a Chabad rabbi that's an amazing speaker. I follow him sometimes. His name is Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. He's an incredibly powerful speaker. And I heard him on a little clip saying the following. He says, you know, people often give parents a blessing. May you have nachas from your children. Right. You might hear that expression when there's like a barabah mitzvah or a wedding or there's a child born in the family. Oh, may you have much nachas from your children. Right. So he asked the question, why do we give parents the blessing that they should have nachas from their children? We should call the kids in the room and say, hey, kids, give your parents nachas. Right. Why is it the parents blessing? Right? And, and when the parents get blessed, they say, amen, amen. May I have nachas for my children. So he said something so beautiful and profound. He said, you know, we think of nachas as something that happens to you, right? If my kids behave, I'll have nachas from them. If they do things that bring me pride and joy, if they do the things that I expect them to do, then I'll have nachas from them. But he says, no, it's a blessing for the parents. May you choose to have nachas from your children. What does that mean? That means nachas is not something that happens to you. Nachas is a mindset that you have the ability and the power to look at your children and find the nachas. Even if they're not giving you nachas in a conventional way, marrying Jewish, having kids, you know, get a good job, be a productive member of society. You know, what if they're doing none of those things? They're not hitting the usual benchmarks of nachas. I give you a blessing that you can find the nachas. That's your blessing, parents, that you may have the ability to see the nachas. So I love that. I think that's so beautiful. And I would also like to add one more thing. For people who don't have their own biological children or for people whose children are unable to hit those benchmarks, the Torah says, that if you teach somebody Torah, it is as if you gave birth to them. That means that any person in your life that you have positively impacted with your Torah lifestyle, your values, your wisdom, your beauty, and you have inspired growth in that person, then that person is like your child. So that means that all of you probably have a zillion kids. You didn't know that you had a zillion kids, right? Because everybody that you impact in that way, you are birthing. You are helping to raise and birth that human being. So this verse is broader than it might seem at first glance. Okay, let's get into the commentary. Bottom of page 179. A person is both a biological and a spiritual being. As a biological entity, he is comforted in his old age when death approaches by his own physical descendants, and I will add his own spiritual descendants, right? Those whom he has positively impacted and taught, who will exist in his stead when he is gone. 
right? So what does that mean? Really, the main job of a parent is to be a teacher, right? The word horim, which means parents in Hebrew, and the word morim, which means teacher in Hebrew, come from the exact same root. And the root is or, light. Horim and morim, their job is to shine a light, which is, by the way, the same root of the word Torah. Torah is ora, it's light. The Torah shines a light, and parents and teachers help to shine that light. Please excuse me as a truck drives right by my window. So therefore, anybody to whom you have shined a light in your life, that will be the person that continues your values after you're gone, right? When we have our own children, our goal, our desire is to teach them values so there will be more good people left in this world when we're gone, right? So anybody who is a positive influence is producing the same thing, leaving good people in this world with good values for when you're gone. Okay, continuing in the commentary, as a human and spiritual being, he takes pride and credit in the righteousness of his fathers whose spiritual heritage he bears, right? So again, we're talking about an optimal situation where a person can look at their parents and say, wow, so grateful I am, so blessed I am to have been the recipient of this legacy. Now, again, we know that some people are born into less than optimal families, right? And sometimes it's really hard to overcome. And sometimes there's shame over our parents or grandparents and the things they've said and done. You know, I've spoken to many people, there's a new baby in the family and they thinking of naming after this one or that one. And they're like, listen, I gotta be honest with you. I don't wanna name after ancestor X because that person was not a good person. And I don't want my child to carry that name, right? That's, that's a reality. And as I've mentioned, some of our greatest leaders and teachers in Judaism have found themselves in this situation, right? So a couple things on that. Number one, if you go back enough generations, I promise you, you will find a rich spiritual ancestor somewhere. And I fully believe, my husband and I talk about this all the time, when you find somebody who is interested in Torah wisdom, after generations of people not being interested in Torah wisdom, we fully believe, we call it schus avos, the merits of your ancestors. There is some grandparent up there in heaven praying and rooting for you to connect. So somewhere back there, there is somebody, you know, that really has that value. But even aside from that, just as a person who teaches someone else Torah, it is as if they birthed them, right? Somebody who teaches your Torah, who teaches you Torah, is like a spiritual parent to you, right? Because that is the person shining the light for you. And also, just as I said that it is a parent's job to find the nachas in their children, it is also a child's job to find something to be proud of in their parents. Meaning, even if your parents or somebody's parents didn't necessarily give them this rich, wise, moral legacy, but I guarantee you, there is something you can learn from them and something that you got from them, something that you received from your home growing up that was positive, right? And as we say at the Passover Seder, dayenu, 
That is enough to be grateful. The fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. The main reason for that commandment is gratitude. That person gave you life, right? Or maybe that person didn't physically give you life, but they raised you. And for that alone, Dayenu, even if they didn't do anything else right their whole life, which they probably did, right? It's on us to find the point of gratitude and to figure out what we can be proud of, of our parental legacy. So, um, so we're talking about the pride in our children and grandchildren, whether physical descendants or spiritual descendants. And we're talking about the pride in our forebears, whether physical or spiritual, whether just one generation up or maybe more than one generation up, there is something to be proud of and something to feel blessed for. Thoughts, comments, questions on verse six. Uh, hi, Rikli Elad. Um, I also think, um, so my dad, as many of you know, passed a couple years ago. He has a lot to be of good that was passed down um, that I do, that he inspires me to do. But also, um, I, I don't even know where I learned this from, but it's, he also had a couple of things that he struggled with. So when I find myself in the same situation with something that he struggled with, I make a decision that he never was able to make. And I feel like by doing that, I'm like um, finishing his work or continuing on the work that he did for himself that he wasn't able to finish. So I find, you know, pleasure in that. That is so beautiful, Dana. I think that is such an unbelievable reframe. And I'll actually back up what you're saying with a quote from the Talmud. There's a quote from the Talmud. I remember learning this as a young child because as, as some, many of you know, I lost my father when I was six. And the teaching from the Talmud goes like this, Bra mezaka abba. A, cre a creature, a human being, can um, give merit to their father or mother. Which means that when a person has passed to the next world, right? Their children who remain here, even though we said that the person who has passed to the next world, right? They're, they're like poor in mitzvot. They can't do anything. But if your child does something positive, it creates merit for the parent. So they cannot do mitzvot for themselves anymore, but their descendants can do mitzvot for them. And it's as though they did it because they, they made you and, and you did it. So I think that's so beautiful so beautiful that we have this incredible power if our parents weren't able to do something or be something in their lifetime that we can do a tikkun a repair right and we can finish the job that they couldn't do either because they didn't have the education or maybe they had personality limitations or whatever the reason might be right and we can kind of finish their job for them so beautiful thank you Any other thoughts on verse um, six? Dana, it's Heather. I love what you just said. That's so awesome. And I'm going to totally use it with my clients in therapy. And yesterday, Ruchi, I said much of what you're saying right now to a woman um, that just merely by the fact that she birthed you, you know, you should have some gratitude for that. And she said, Oh my God, I've never thought of that in my entire life. And it like, 
I'm glad it, it like resonated with her. Wow. Because I'm sure some people would be turned off by that. <clears throat> but um, yeah, I just love That's the Hashbacha so Prati. <laughs> That's so beautiful, Heather. And and I have to say that like, you know, as a therapist, you, um, I'm sure you fulfill in some ways, not, not in like a weird or inappropriate way, in a professional way, you know, a maternal role for some of your clients, because there are people who come to therapy who um, have not had positive role models in their parents. And when they meet a therapist who's skilled and caring and professional and gives them guidance, right? That's, that's a shining of a light, right? It doesn't technically have to be in a Torah capacity. It could be in a professional helping capacity, but look how you are shining a light to your clients with the wisdom that you've received. It's so beautiful. (laughs) I, I have nachas from you, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I have the best curriculum ever, you know? The, Isn't, it yeah, Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? I know. Absolutely. We all are like, th- this is what it means, ashrinu matol which is which is a verse from the Torah. How lucky, how blessed, how fortunate we are. Not, not lucky, I don't like the word luck, but how blessed yeah. and fortunate we are to be the recipients of the Torah. Like, like Heather said, it's the best curriculum ever. Think about all the things we're learning just today alone, right? The test of wealth and how to relate to people who are less fortunate than you and how to view our children and how to view or or lack thereof and how to view our parental role models or lack thereof. You know, the Torah is like, it's so brimming with wisdom. I like, I feel bad for anybody who doesn't have access to it. You know, we're just so, so blessed. So thank you, Heather, for that comment and for your amazing work. Any other thoughts before we move on? All right, let's do one more. Let's do verse eight. Evan, no, where are we? Sorry, seven, not eight. Okay, here we go. Um, We're on the top of page 180. Lo nava la naval sfat yeter. Extravagant speech is not be, is not becoming to a churl. I love, love, love these words. I have to look up when this book was translated. Um, 1982. Okay, that explains a lot. I think I was seven years old in 1982. Extravagant speech is not becoming to a churl. Much less lying lips to a generous person. Notice how much of this book is focused on our speech, what we say, the truthfulness of what we say, right? The kindness of what we say, the rationalizations or justifications that we offer. It's really, it's a very, very big theme in this book. Okay, so what is a churl? In Hebrew, it's naval. What is naval? A naval is a person who has like a, a ne- negative character traits, which it expresses itself in various different ways, right? So here in the commentary, it says the opposite of generous, the churl is niggardly, which by the way, is not a pejorative. I looked it up before class just to make sure. It means that it's a, a person who's stingy. That's what it means, right? And so this person, extravagant speech is not becoming to a churl. Right. So this is like a person who's constantly talking about doing things, but doesn't actually do them. <laughs> right. 
we we call that a uh, what how do I call it overcommit and underdeliver, right? Oh, I'm totally going to do that and be there. Yes, I'll contribute. Yes, I'm done. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, I can't. What? No, forget it. I'm sorry. What? No, I'm not answering your phone calls anymore. And as a rule, does not even promise any kindness or charity. And then you have the person who doesn't even say that they're going to do anything good, right? Should he make a promise, however, and not keep his word, such extravagant speech is shameful, right? Better not to be so verbal and wordy about all the things you're going to do than to say it and not do it, right? And if you don't say it and you do it, great, right? That's that's gravy. Always better to do more than what you promised than to do less than what you promised. So say less and do more, right? We have this, we have this dictum in the Torah, and more ma'at, say little, but I say harbei, and do much. Right? Who's the example of that? The example of that in the Torah is Abraham, our patriarch. When if some of you may recall the story of the three angels who came by his house, it was right after his circumcision at the ripe old age of 99. And God made it very, very hot so that no guests would come by his tent. But he saw that Abraham was distressed at not having any guests. So he brought these three angels and Abraham says, oh, please come in. Let me get you a bit of bread and water. And he goes and slaughters a calf and he makes them tongue and he brings them mustard and, you know, all this, all these delicacies. So he says to them, let me give you, you know, as we would say in our modern parlance, oh, come on in and I'll give you a bite to eat. And then lo and behold, he gives them a four course meal. Then we have the opposite, which is emor harbei va'asei ma'at, saying a lot and doing a little. What's the example of this? So, so there's a character in the Torah. His name was Ephron Hachiti. Ephron from the, the Hittite. He was from the, the nation of Chait, the Hittites. And when Abraham's wife, Sarah, died, and he's looking for a burial plot for her, right? And he goes to the city of Hebron. Many of you know that, that um, there's a cave there called Ma'arat HaMachpelah, the cave of the couples. And Abraham and Sarah are buried there, and Isaac and Rebekah, and um, Jacob and Leah and Adam and Eve. They're all far buried there. And so Abraham said, listen, I want to buy a burial plot for my wife, even though God had already promised the whole land to Abraham and he didn't have to buy it, which is interesting that the city of Hebron is constantly under questionable ownership to many. But actually, it's the one place documented in the Torah that Abraham paid for with his own good money. So he says to Ephron, because the, the, the Hittite nation was living there then, and he said, I want to buy a burial plot for my wife. And Ephron said, oh, come on, please. We're friends. I'll give it to you as a present. And guess what? I'll throw in the whole field for free. The cave and the field for you, please. So Abraham says, no, no, I, I really want to pay for it fair and square. And I want it to go down in history. You know, that I want a deed. I want a receipt, you know. And Ephraim says, after a, whole, a couple of back and forth, he says, okay, whatever. Give me like a billion shekels. It's fine. And and he does. And he pays him. I, I once looked it up how much it is. It was expensive, okay, <laughs> in real estate money. Um, so he was the example of the one who says a lot. First, he's like, I'll give you all of it as a present. And in the end, he very gladly accepted a very large sum of money. So we definitely want to be like Ephron, like Abraham, sorry, and not like Ephron. Always better to undercommit and overdeliver than to overcommit and underdeliver. Okay, so that's the extravagant speech is not becoming to a churl. If you're not going to do it, stop saying you're going to do it. Miserly though he be, he should keep his word, right? In, in the Torah, 
Giving your word is a very serious commitment. We take a verbal agreement seriously. You said you were going to do something that is significant in Judaism. If a generous person makes a vain promise, it is trebly blameworthy. <laughs> Triple bad. Okay. Number one, he is normally open-handed. So let's say this is a generous person, right? That's the second half of the verse, much less lying lips to a generous person. So we already got finished saying how a person who generally does not give shouldn't talk so much about it, right? But what about a person who usually does give and he made a commitment and he doesn't? So he's normally open-handed and now he's not. So he's changing from a good habit to a bad habit. Number two, he has not kept his promise right? As I said, in Judaism, a promise is a serious commitment, and we believe that promises should be kept. And number three, he lied. Lying is a very serious issue in Judaism. The Torah says, midvar sheker tirchak, stay far away from lies, which is the Torah doesn't usually talk like that. The Torah doesn't usually tell us to distance ourselves from things. It just says, do this, don't do that. But when it comes to lying, the Torah says, listen, we're not just going to tell you not to do it. Stay far away from it. Honesty is so important and valuable in Judaism. Be very, very careful about the words that cross your lips because they are significant and they are serious. So in this verse, we're talking about the miserly person who talks a lot and then the generous person who commits and does not keep his commitment. And both of these are serious offenses. Okay, so thoughts or comments on number seven. Or any other thoughts before we close today? Okay, it's just so weird that you read this first. I'm like, this keeps happening. On Sunday, my brother was here and we were talking about over-promising, under-delivering. And I said, there was this guy, Efron, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, get out. She did not just read that. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. It's really crazy. It's awesome. It, actually, it's happy. funny because Ephron is, a, you know, it's a last name. Uh, it yeah. comes from the Torah. Yeah, I know. I was thinking, I said to my husband, I said to Brad, if I think if my last name were Ephron, I would change it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like literally be anyone else. <laughs> right. Like there's just, there's so much in a name. So that's yeah. That's amazing. Thanks, Thank Rafe. Thank you, Heather. Any other Special final injection. thoughts before we close today? Okay, so thank you so much, everybody. Great thank being you with you all today. Time. May we all be merited to bring our teachings into our lives and thank to you. live better lives because of this amazing gift called the Torah that we were given. Amen. Thank you. Amen. amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great day, everybody. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Bye.